Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 44, the book of Acts, chapters 19 and 20. You know, it's kind of eye-opening to notice that up until the 19th chapter of Acts, actual behavioral changes of new believers coming to faith in in Yeshua has not been something we've seen. Rather, Luke's focus has been about how Paul and others took the good news to the diaspora, the challenges they encountered all along the way, what the typical objections to Yeshua as Messiah were, the locations that were evangelized, the fact that some Jews and Gentiles accepted salvation, and the fact that most Jews and Gentiles fought mightily against it. But, to this point... Acceptance of Yeshua has largely been an issue of knowledge, spirit, and conscience. For the Jews, this is understandable. Paul has not been suggesting changes to their Jewish lifestyles or customs. Why why, why would he? I mean, for Paul, coming to faith in Yeshua wasn't about turning from his established religion to a new one. Rather, it was the logical and scripturally prophesied progression of his Jewish faith. Yeshua wasn't a new and unexpected path. He was the manifestation of what had been predicted in the Tanakh for centuries. Jews had always been following God's commandments, at least in their own eyes, and worshiping in ways that they believed the God of Israel deemed acceptable. They were eating according to the biblical dietary laws. They were forming families, practicing morality in accordance with the Torah, although in reality what they were following was halakha, Jewish law. Now on the other hand, The first Gentiles to come to faith were God-fearers, meaning they were already worshipping the God of Israel at some level, attending synagogues alongside Jews, and they had a rudimentary understanding of the concept of a Messiah before they were introduced to Yeshua. Now in the most recent chapters of Acts that we've studied, we see that even a few pagan Gentiles have come into the fold. Yet after attending services at a synagogue, these same Gentiles went home to their Gentile world, complete with Gentile friends, family, and social associations. They practiced a Gentile lifestyle while following a Hebrew religion. They had one foot in each world and they saw no conflict in that. But indeed, these Gentiles were asked to make behavioral changes. And we saw these changes ordained by the leadership of the Jerusalem Council back in Acts chapter 15. Most of these changes 
for Gentiles were to involve food restrictions, and the other changes involved abstention from idolatry and sexual immorality. Well, living in foreign lands, diaspora Jews made lifestyle concessions to their Gentile-dominated environment to varying degrees. Some Jews merely tried to behave in friendly ways with the Gentiles so that they could live in peace, but they maintained a traditional Jewish lifestyle. Other Jews adopted most of the Gentile lifestyle, and they became Jews in name only. The majority of Jews adopted a lifestyle of something in between these two extremes. Thus, in Acts 19, we hear about a family of Jewish exorcists. These were Jews who had adopted pagan ways of dealing with demons. So what we learn is this. For the most part, the Jews and Gentiles who came to belief in Yeshua went right on living their lives just as they had before this new knowledge with no substantial changes. Now, it apparently didn't dawn on them, and it didn't seem to be particularly pushed upon them, that their newfound faith needed to be expressed outwardly in deeds and in actions, not just in thoughts and words. So what was it that caused them to see things differently and to voluntarily make real, meaningful lifestyle changes? Well, in Acts 19 we saw two things happen that seriously impressed the local believers of Ephesus. First. Paul went around miraculously healing people with prayer and laying on hands. But also, cloth items that Paul had merely touched were used by others to heal. Second, Paul drove out demons from victims by ordering them out in Yeshua's name. But when some Jewish sorcerers tried using Yeshua's name to exercise a demon, it not only failed, but the sorcerers were pummeled by the demon until they ran away bleeding and naked. Well, immediately thereafter, we see Jewish and Gentile Ephesians, all believers, taking their expensive books of magic and spells out into the streets, piling them high and burning them. So the moral of the story is this. Actual trust cannot exist only in the realm of speech and thought. But it must also result in our turning from committing sins. We must turn. Coming to Christ must at some point pass from theory to application for it to be of real value in heaven or on earth. But this maturation doesn't happen overnight. New believers need good teaching to add depth to their understanding. They must have mentoring. They must be given living examples to guide them along. 
They must personally step out and engage in deeds. They must make actual lifestyle changes, particularly when it comes to letting go of something in their lives that's obviously sinful and bad for them. Afterwards, it can be about maintaining this new lifestyle in a, in a way more in line with righteousness and love and kindness and mercy. Avoiding the temptations that could draw us right back into sin if we're not careful. Well, let's continue in our study of Acts 19 by starting at verse 21. Open your Bibles to Acts Chapter 21, uh, rather Acts chapter 19, verse 21, page 1387, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 1387. And we will start again at verse 21. Sometime later, Shaul decided by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and then go to Jerusalem. Now after I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome. So he dispatched two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia. But he himself remained in the province of Asia for a while. Now it was at this time that a major furor arose concerning the way. There was a silversmith named Demetrius who manufactured from silver objects connected with the worship of the god Artemis. And he provided no small amount of work for the craftsmen. He called a meeting of them and those engaged in similar trades. And he said, Men, you understand that this line of business provides us our living. And you can see and hear for yourselves that not only here in Ephesus, but in practically the whole province of Asia, this, this Shaul has convinced and turned away a considerable crowd by saying that man-made gods aren't gods at all. Now the danger is not only that the reputation of our trade will suffer, but that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will come to be taken lightly. It could end up with the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and indeed throughout the whole world, being ignominiously brought down from her divine majesty. Now hearing this, they were filled with rage and began bellowing, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. Then as one man, the mob rushed into the theater, dragging along uh, Gaius and Aristarchus, Shaul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Paul himself wanted to hear, and wanted to rather appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of his, sent a message begging him not to enter, not to risk entering the theater. Meanwhile, some were shouting one thing, others something else, because the assembly was in complete confusion. And the great majority didn't even know why they were there. Some of the crowd explained the situation to Alexander, whom the Jews had pushed to the front. So Alexander motioned for silence, hoping to make a defense speech to the people. But as soon as they recognized that he was a Jew, they began bellowing in unison, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! They kept it up for about two hours. Well, at last, the city clerk was able to quiet the crowd. Men of Ephesus, he said, is there anyone who doesn't know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone which fell from the sky? Since this is beyond dispute, you'd better calm down and not do anything rash. For you 
have brought these men here who've neither robbed the temple nor insulted your goddess. So if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, the judges are there. Let them bring charges and counter charges. But if there is something more you want, it's going to have to be settled in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being accused of rioting on account of what's happened today. There is no justification for it. And if we're asked, we will be unable to give any reason, reasonable explanation for this disorderly gathering. And with these words, he, dis- he dismissed the assembly. Acts 21, uh, uh, rather, Acts 19 begins with the words sometime later. Now this phrase, Acts 19.21, is a rather standard Hebrew literary device. All it does is in one train of thought, changes to something else. There is no sense of these words trying to quantify how much time has passed. It could have been a day or two. could have been a year or two. The context usually reveals the amount of time involved here. Here it was likely just a few days, maybe a few weeks at most. Now we're told that Paul decided by the Spirit where he should go from Ephesus. Now I don't want to overanalyze or allegorize this short statement. Yet there is a simple principle presented to us that constantly trips up well-intentioned believers. And this principle is that both Paul and the Spirit have input into the decision of what comes next. Experience with God has proven to me that the life of a believer is a cooperative venture between the Lord and his follower. He's not going to control us like the operator of a marionette does. Yet, we aren't entirely free agents who have no master. We're to look to God in all things. We are to pay attention, discern as much as he wishes to tell us. But then we must do it. It's not a negotiation. As here with Paul, what is received is usually a somewhat general instruction from God that doesn't give us a lot of details about how to carry out the assignment. Much is left to our discretion. You know, I've seen so many believers utterly paralyzed because while they have a general idea of what the Lord wants them to do, they don't think they've received a complete enough set of divine orders so they've determined to take no action until they do. I'm not sure I've ever seen a case where those hoped for detailed instructions eventually came like they did to Moses on Mount Sinai. Because to God, the process of our journey is every bit as important as the destination. But I've seen many cases where the moment eventually passed and the opportunity God gave us to serve Him was wasted. And believers were left frustrated, disappointed, 
See, Paul knew from the Spirit that Rome was the key destination on God's agenda. But the route and the timing to get there were mostly Paul's. I'm not sure that Paul knew exactly why Rome was so important to God. We actually get a few more details about what Paul's journey towards Rome would look like. Not surprisingly, in the book of Romans. And we also get some other pertinent information in 1 Corinthians. In Romans, for example, in Romans 15, 23-26, we read this. But now, since there is no longer a place in these regions that needs me, and since I have wanted for many years to come to you, I hope to see you as I pass through on my way to Spain and to have you help me travel there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. But now I'm going to Jerusalem with aid for God's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia thought it would be good to make some contribution to the poor among God's people in Jerusalem. So what we see is that Paul actually wound up venturing much farther west, all the way to Spain, than he at first seems to have planned on in Acts chapter 19. And we get a hint that at least one factor in Paul's choice of route and timing of his journey had to do with collecting contributions for the poor in Jerusalem. That's interesting. So let's follow that a little bit further. So in 1 Corinthians, we learn this. In 1 Corinthians 16.1, Now, in regard to the collections being made for God's people, you are to do the same as I directed the congregations in Galatia to do. Every week on Motzei Shabbat, Saturday night, each of you should set, us up, set some money aside according to his resources and save it up so that when I come, I won't have to do fundraising. And when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the people you have approved, and I will send them to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Seems appropriate that I go too, so they'll go along with me. So we see that the collection of funds for the poor was heavily on Paul's mind during his travels. Then the question becomes this. Was this simply a general gift of charity for poor Jews in Jerusalem, probably mostly believers, or was there something else behind this? Well, we'll discuss that a little bit more when we get to Acts chapter 20. Now, interestingly, in verse 22, the young disciple Timothy reappears on the scene. Paul intended to first go to Macedonia, so he dispatched Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia to precede his arrival. Likely this was to begin to gather the donations. Now we're told that Paul would stay on in Asia for a while. This is referring really to Ephesus because Ephesus was considered as perhaps the major representative city of Asia. But before Paul left to join Timothy and Erastus in Macedonia, a most serious disturbance occurred in Ephesus. And it had the potential of being life-threatening, but fortunately it wasn't. This disturbance involved the well-to-do business owners of the city's lucrative silversmith trade. 
Now, whereas up to now it had been Jews who were the instigators of riots and violence against Paul and others of the band of the traveling disciples, here it is Gentiles. And the verse makes it clear that in the eyes of the rioters, the upset was directed less at individual believers more against certain religious principles that were promoted by the way. So the story begins by the naming of a certain individual, a Greek named Demetrius, who was likely the head of the local silversmith guild. He is the one who ignites the disturbance. And the bottom line is, this was mostly about money. The city of Ephesus was the patron city for the goddess Artemis. And most of the works created by this guild of silversmiths were in honor of Artemis. She was the all-important fertility goddess. Now we've discussed in our studies of other Bible books that a fertility goddess was just standard fare for generally any mystery Babylon-based god system. It's only that her name changed from culture to culture. Her name was Artemis in Ephesus, but it was Ashtaroth in the Hebrew language, Astarte in Phoenician, Ishtar in Akkadian, Estre in Anglo-Saxon, Easter in English. Her symbols were the same throughout. Rabbits, eggs, usually colored, and she was depicted normally with bared breasts, but not meant as anything erotic, but rather as symbolic as being the provider of life-giving mother's milk. But Artemis was also supposed to have had a special relationship with Ephesus as their protector and their benefactor. Now what is known is that her temple and the associated temple treasury was among the richest in the world. Her temple structure was enormous. Something like 400 feet long and 200 feet wide. Half again as big as a football field. A vast array of arts and crafts and jewelry making and other commercial ventures of every imaginable type were built around Artemis worship. So everything that was associated with worshiping Artemis had a major impact on the economy of Ephesus that extended to most of the province of Asia. To say that she was important understates her position and influence on the well-being of this entire region from both a financial and a religious aspect. Well, naturally, Artemis made Ephesus an influential and admired city. Thousands of visitors came annually to pay their respects to the fertility goddess Artemis. Well, Jewish literature, including the Talmud, indicates that traditional Judaism of that era didn't spend much time or effort disputing idol worship by pagans. 
Rather, their aim was to establish laws and regulations against idol worship for the Jewish community. So there's no evidence of a wholesale denunciation of idols, publicly or privately, by the diaspora Jews where it concerns Gentiles. More there's a sense of simply accepting the existence of idols and then ignoring them as something that had nothing to do with Jews or Judaism. It's much like that today as to how Judaism regards Christianity. See, Jews generally see Christianity as a fine and acceptable religion for Gentiles. And as long as Christians don't try to impose our ways on them, then you usually won't hear Jews saying bad things about the church or against our faith. However, it is a foundational principle taught to Jewish children from their earliest age that Jews must stay away from the influences of Christianity at all costs because it could steal their souls. So in ancient times, the Jews had a more or less peaceful coexistence with pagans, just as they do in our day with Christians, while at the same time not condoning pagan or Christian practices for Jews. So when we compare this understanding with what we then read in verse 26, which says that Shaul was convincing many in Ephesus, Gentiles, certainly we're talking about, that these man-made gods, these silversmiths created, weren't gods at all, then we see that this is something the Ephesians had not been used to contending with. This rather large Jewish community that had existed for so long in Ephesus was content with minding their own business, keeping their opinions about idols to themselves. But Paul was not inclined to be so politically correct. Paul was also, no doubt, the best known public face for the way, at least out in the diaspora. Paul had no fear of debating and contending publicly even if it was one against many. Recall that when Paul was in Athens he openly debated the veracity of their many god idols. Surprisingly he didn't get into too much trouble there. But that's because they took it as more of an intellectual debate than a religious assault. And as it turns out, two of the main groups of philosophers in Athens that Paul was debating were the Epicureans and the Stoics, neither of which had much regard for these various gods and god statues, god statues that were present all over the city. But Ephesus was different. Idols were their economic lifeblood. And they also had a very real devotion to Artemis. Well, at the meeting of the silversmith guild that he called, this Demetrius says that in addition to the economic ruin upon Ephesus that these certain Jews called the way could cause, Artemis herself 
could have her status and glory diminished if such talk went on unrestrained. Now this possibility meant a couple of things to the Ephesians. First, if her glory diminished, then so would the glory of Ephesus. And thus, the steady stream of tourists would also dry up. But second, the status of a god was always in direct proportion to that god's perceived power. The more God was worshipped, the more widespread their reputation, the greater the size of their temple and their treasury, the higher up they were in the God hierarchy. The higher your God was in the God hierarchy, the more they could do for you. So Ephesus saw their fate as directly tied to the fate of Artemis. And they felt that Paul in the way endangered it all. The crowd got all fired up when they heard this impassioned oratory of Demetrius and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians as a show of support for her honor. Well, the main assembly place in Ephesus was the city theater. And it was used for government and and civic purposes. Well, now incensed, the crowd rushed into the theater dragging along with them at least two members of the way. Gaius and Aristarchus who had come to Ephesus from Macedonia just to assist Paul. Now it's likely that Gaius and Aristarchus weren't so much captured as they were just kind of swept along with this irrepressible mass of humanity as it flowed into the theater as unstoppable as a flash flood in a wadi. See, I I was once caught in such a situation at the opening of a soccer match in Brazil. I've never felt such power imposed upon me. I've never experienced this helpless panic. I mean, my sole goal was simply to remain upright. Or I would surely have been trampled by people who wouldn't have been aware of what was under their feet. Well, Paul being Paul, (laughs) he wants to confront the mob. He wants to go into the theater to offer a defense of his friends and of the way, but his disciples restrained him because they rightly feared for his life. Well, the scene is one of complete madness. Everybody shouting something different, with many not even knowing that they're knowing any more than their fellow Ephesian friends were nearly hysterical only with anger. That's the way of angry mobs. Rumors are spread, facts are distorted, logic and rationality flee, and only hyper the hyper emotion of the moment prevails. That's how lynchings happen. Some government officials of Asia who were friendly with Paul also strongly advised him not to go into the theater, they said, because the situation is out of control. Well, here is where we need to pay more attention. Verse 33 says that a Jew named Alexander was apparently just as much in the dark as to the actual cause of the upset as was the bulk of the crowd. Some local Jews found him. They explained it all to him. And he tried to make a speech to the masses to calm things down. But the moment they saw he was a Jew, 
They simply up the volume of their chant. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. These determined people kept us up, we're told, were told, for two solid hours. See, here's the thing. This statement about Alexander is more proof that Gentiles made no distinction between the way and other factions of Judaism. This riot was essentially an anti-Jewish backlash. From the Gentile perspective, the way consisted of Jews and those loyal to this Jewish movement, just as did all the other Jews belong to one sect of Judaism or another. Jews, of course, understood that the way had as their core belief that the founder of their movement, Yeshua of Nazareth, a Jewish man, was the Messiah, something they disagreed with. But they too didn't see the way as anything but one of the many rival factions of their Jewish religion because in all other discernible ways they were no different in their underlying beliefs than any of their other Jewish brothers. The way was seen as a Jewish religion, not as a Gentile religion. And this is so by both Jews and Gentiles. It is only several decades later that erroneous Christian teaching spread that tried to make the way at the time of Paul something called Christianity, Gentile in its nature, and thus an opponent of Jewish Judaism. Now I realize I've spoken to this subject rather recently and I do it repeatedly. But until this is accepted and acted upon by Christians and Christian leadership, then the social and religious context of the New Testament is going to remain misunderstood. Essentially, my position is a retreat from the anti-Semitism that has dogged Christianity for 18 centuries. And it's a call to reform some of the church's most misguided doctrines that especially deal with our relationship with Israel, with the Jewish people, and with the Torah. Well, finally, the city clerk was able to quiet the rabble. Now, while the citizens of Ephesus felt just in their cause of upholding the glory of Artemis, the civic leaders knew that the Roman government would tolerate almost anything except for chaos and civil disorder. That's something they reacted to without mercy. That this man could quiet the crowd demonstrates that in this city of three quarters of a million people, he was widely known, obviously respected as having authority. He speaks as a politician who diplomatically tries to show solidarity with these upset sensibilities of the crowd in order to ratchet down their emotions enough for reasoned logic and common sense to have some room to operate. Wisely, he says, there is no need to dispute or question the veracity of Artemis or that Ephesus is the home of this great goddess and that this is the place where the sacred stone fell from the sky which for people of that era was an indisputable sign of the holiness of this place. Of all this, there's no question, he says, 
And it's so obvious and self-evident, who cares what some Jews think about it? The sacred stone that's being spoken of is no doubt a meteorite. These objects falling from the sky were rare enough that they mesmerized the ancient mind. But the one in Ephesus was not without precedent. There are ancient records of other sacred stones that fell from the clouds. In fact, you know, Islam today at Mecca has a shrine named the Kaaba that holds what's called the Black Stone. Actually, it's a number of small stone fragments that are held together in kind of a, a special frame. And no doubt, the sacred black stone is a, a meteorite. And like the Artemis worshippers of Ephesus, Muslims consider this black stone at Mecca as perhaps the most holy object in Islam. And millions venture to Mecca every year to see it. Thus, reasons this unnamed city clerk, since we all agree that, Artem that this Artemis cult is venerated, it's above reproach, and our goddess has allegedly been attacked with nothing but a few words, then it's time to chill out before this gets any uglier. He goes on to say that these men whom the crowd want to have punished, they've not robbed the temple. They haven't specifically done something to insult Artemis. In fact, with what little information he has at hand, these men, these Jews, are innocent of any wrongdoing whatsoever. This unwarranted riot, therefore, puts this city and its residents in a precarious position. And by the way, in a number of places in our story, The word crowd that's used to characterize the people is the English translation of the Greek word ecclesia. I hope that Greek word rings a bell for you. Ecclesia. Because it is regularly translated in English in our English New Testaments as the word church. So I suppose we ought to substitute the word church in our Bibles everywhere it says crowd. You suppose? Of course not. We wouldn't do that because it would completely mischaracterize this assembly of unruly people, wouldn't it? But this is also what we face as Bible students when we realize that any time in the New Testament that the way gathers for an assembly, for an ecclesia, Christian translators automatically insert the English word church. So why don't they just call it a crowd? As they have throughout Acts chapter 19. Well, very simply, the intent is to mischaracterize believing Jews meeting at a synagogue as Christians meeting for church. That's the point. Well, in verse 38, the city clerk says that if the head of the silversmith guild, Demetrius, actually has a verifiable case of wrongdoing against these men, then it ought to be handled in the right way. Bring them before the town judges and let there be a legitimate and lawful trial where both sides can state their case. 
reason is beginning to win out. So he continues by saying that unless this crowd disperses, word's going to reach Rome that an unlawful assembly, an unlawful ecclesia, has happened. And they'll be without excuse. The consequences of that can be truly terrible. He finishes his speech. Everyone left the theater. No worse for the wear. Paul and his companions, no doubt, went someplace to rest. Severely shaken, but fortunately not harmed. Well, let's get just a little bit of a start on um, Acts chapter 20. We're going to cover a couple of verses today. But I want to give you a brief glimpse of where we're going to go next week. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. We're just going to read the first 12 verses. Acts chapter 20, starting on page 1388, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. After the Fuhrer died down, Shaul sent for the Talmudim, the disciples, and he encouraged them, then took his leave and set out on his way to Macedonia. He went through that area and after saying much to encourage them, passed on to Greece, where he spent three months. And as he was preparing to set sail for Syria, he discovered a plot against him by the unbelieving Jews. So he changed his mind and decided to return by way of Macedonia. So Peter from Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and did Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, uh, Gaius from Derby, Timothy and uh, Tychius and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on and waited for us in Troas while we sailed from Philippi after the days of Matzah. Five days later we met them in Troas where we spent a week. On Motze Shabbat, where we were gathered to bake bread, Paul addressed them, and since he was going to leave the next day, he kept talking until midnight. Now there were many oil lamps burning in the upstairs room where we were meeting, and there was a young fellow named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill. And as Shaul's drash went on and on, Eutychus grew sleepier and sleepier until finally he went sound asleep, and he fell from the third story to the ground. When they picked him up, he was dead. But Paul went down and threw himself onto him, put his arms around him and said, Don't be upset. He's alive. Then he went back upstairs, broke the bread and ate. And he continued talking with them until daylight and then left. So greatly relieved, they brought the boy home alive. This chapter begins with the words, after the Fuhrer died down. Of course, referring to the near-death experience of Paul and a couple of the disciples at the Ephesus riots. Well, we see in the first verse that Shaul called a meeting of his disciples in Ephesus to encourage them. There was no undoing, there was no watering down of the reality of what had just happened. There's no painting a happy face on this. Without doubt, the terrifying events of a few hours or days earlier had taken its toll on the local believers of Ephesus. I mean, if you were a believer and had been a resident of this otherwise peaceful and progressive city, you had a long history of your family living there in harmony, perhaps for a few generations. How might you feel about your personal security and your place in the community after something like this? 
Would you ever be able to look at your neighbors and business associates in quite the same way again? How enthused and sure about the value or the advantage of your newfound faith in Yeshua might you be? Fellow worshipers, let's, let's part today agreeing to soberly consider the ramifications of our duties and devotion as followers of Yeshua in light of where the world stands in our time and the trajectory that, is, that it's undeniably on. Christianity is struggling to survive in many parts of Europe where at one time it was near to universal. In the USA, our highest government leaders challenge the notion of our being a Christian nation or having ever been. Our schools, by policy, have outlawed God. Active Christian fundamentalism is officially regarded with suspicion by Homeland Security as bordering on terrorism because of its passion, its lack of tolerance towards liberal secular ideals and Islam. Such basic human attributes as the sex that God gave to us at birth has nearly overnight become something an individual can redefine or even opt out of by means of a personal declaration. A number of our largest Christian institutions have decided that the Bible is no longer the last or maybe even the best word on morality, evil, right and wrong. I could go on, I won't. But my question to you then is this. In consideration of what we've been reading about in Acts that the early believers suffered, how far are you willing to go to stick with your biblical values, with your God, and to tell others of your faith in Messiah Yeshua? Are you truly prepared? Truly prepared? to gain God's approval and blessing, probably in exchange for the social, maybe even family, consequences of refusing to go along with the flow of modern culture, or even against the grain of a growing portion of an emerging Christianity that thinks it's best to adapt and to compromise with the latest trends rather than risk becoming outcasts or obsolete? You know, it's so much easier to address this question as theory, but not as practice. Or as it affects others, not ourselves. Folks, I tell you that time is upon us, even if we'd rather not face it because it's just not pleasant. You know, it won't take a great deal more opposition before we find ourselves, as with Paul and Gaius and Aristarchus and Alexander, in the midst of a seething population who sees us as the problem and therefore as the enemy. All due to our faith. People who are our friends yesterday could come against us tomorrow. You know, this has happened to the Jewish people countless times over the centuries because of their faith in the same God that we worship. 
we believers have been warned by our risen Messiah that for his followers it is not a matter of if it's when what should we do what should we do then knowing this if you even agree with this we should follow Peter Paul's and James' examples we should strengthen our relationship with God we should trust our Messiah more than ever and we must build closer ties with our believing community we must for we have the hope of hopes we can have joy now in living a life pleasing to our Lord we can have the assurance of a future life with Yeshua that makes whatever comes our way and our few years on this earth is but a blip on the radar we have the knowledge of a changeless divine truth to back up our decisions and, and, and we have the presence of the Holy Spirit to overcome our challenges we read this in Matthew 16, 24-28 through 28. Then Yeshua told his disciples If anyone wants to come after me let him say no to himself take up his execution stake and keep following me for whoever wants to save his own life will destroy it but whoever destroys his life for my sake he will find it what good will it do if someone gains the whole world but forfeits his life? Or what can a person give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man will come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will repay everyone according to his conduct. Yes, I tell you that there are some people standing here who will not experience death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And we'll continue with Acts chapter 20 next time.